So James 2, starting in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, you have showed us in your good character, and you have showed us in your word, your love for us, your compassion and care for us. And we read today about favoritism, and we need to hear how you want us to live, what you expect of us because of what you've done for us and the change that's happened in our hearts and the fact that you have accepted us into your kingdom through Jesus. And so, Lord, we are grateful that we can look into the word, and we ask that we would humbly submit to it, receive what we read. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a question for you, and you can text it, you can respond to it, you can laugh about it with your kids or your spouse or your friends or whomever, but the first question is this. There, uh, who is the most famous person you've seen or met? You know, like, like maybe a good athlete or a noble person or just somebody who's awesome. Who's like the most famous person, right, when people are lined up? Uh, and it may not be a celebrity because we may not care about celebrities, uh, but just think, just for a second, who is the most famous person I've ever met? You got that person in your mind? Who's the most famous person I've ever seen? Okay, now the, the second question to that, uh, just, just stay with me here. So I think that's, I can't tell who that is. I think it's Federer. We're just going to say it is. Uh, so just with Federer right there, let's assume that that's you down here and that's your famous person. How many people know about this encounter? 
Like how many people have you told, how many name drops have you given about, oh, well, I saw so-and-so, or I did this, or I did that, or, uh, you know, remember that time I saw somebody, or I was talking to somebody, or, oh, yeah, I know them, right? So how many times have you name dropped that? And that's why I said maybe the person even in the room with you or your friend can actually answer this question because they know who you've seen because you won't stop talking about it. Next question. Who is the least famous person that you've ever met? Do you know any nobodies, even a group of nobodies? Um, even us at Genesis. Oh, look at these guys. Who are the least important, least famous, least known people that you have met or that you know or that you've had an encounter with? Now, the same question. Who knows about that interaction? Who knows the nobodies that you are friends with? The people who can contribute nothing to your social status, who will not up your follower count, who people will not be impressed with if you say, oh, yeah, I know Hans, I know Matt, I know Matt, I know Rock, I know John, I know Johnny. Like, and they're like, who's that? So how many people know about your rich and famous encounter and how many people know about your nobody encounter? Okay, the truth is this. We don't name drop nobodies. We just don't say it. So I'll say like, oh, I was talking to my friend. I'll say that if my friend has no way to increase my social status. But I might say, oh, hey, I was talking to my friend who knows John Piper if I want you to think that my friend is somehow special. Or I was talking to my friend who is rich and can buy anything at any time. We'll say that. Oh, I have a friend who went on a $20,000 vacation. I thought it was crazy. You don't talk about the person who's like, we did a staycation, which all of us are doing right now. We want people to know that we have status, and one of the ways that we try and gain that status, we try to exalt ourselves, is to buddy up next to people who can in our eyes, provide something for us. And we know that's a problem. We should know that's a problem. In all of our attempts to focus on status, we miss out on what God has been doing all along. We miss out on character. We miss out on God's design. And so we're going to be in a passage this morning, James 2, 1 through 13, talking about favoritism. And James talks about it in regard to rich and poor, which is a clear one that we still live with even today. But this can also be black and white. Uh, this can also be where you live, this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks. This can also be the clothes that you wear and the way that we try and identify ourselves with other people in hopes that it provides something for us and the way that we will prefer one over another. But I think the rich and poor thread makes a lot of sense because James is going to use that to highlight just some of the, the misunderstandings that that's going to give to us. And so start with me, turn with me if you're there, James 2, starting in verse 1, we have the first statement. Don't play favorites. Should be easy. Don't play favorites. Just don't do it. That's what the whole passage is going to be about, meaning don't, don't have a favorite. Uh, don't have a favorite kid. My kids are probably going to argue over who is their favorite right now. So, you know, well, you can argue amongst yourselves if you're even listening. Um, don't play favorites. 
starts like this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. So James, who, remember, this is an incredibly Jewish book, but it's Jewish also with faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So James, with a strong Jewish background, is going to go, don't show favoritism as you hold on to your faith in our Lord. So he's highlighting the Christian or the Christ-following aspect of why you shouldn't show favoritism. Now, why would he make this link together? Well, just out out of the jump, what did Jesus do for us? Jesus accepted us. He he took us in. He didn't play favorites. He wasn't like, well, you know, me and the Father and the Spirit, you know, we as one have a good thing going, and we're we're not going to include others in this. Jesus brought us in. So through Christ, we have a relationship with the Father. We are indwelled by the Spirit. God is with us, and God is in us, and God is working through us. He did this for us. He showed no partiality in accepting us and in bringing us in and and caring for us, providing for us. And so as we hold on to our faith, it makes sense that we shouldn't show favoritism, but yet James is going to kind of explain how this looks. He says, don't play favorites. Jesus has done something for us that we don't deserve, but he's now going to illustrate it. He's going to give a demonstration of favoritism as loving the rich and as hating the poor. So this is how he's going to show it. And this is an illustration that goes very deeply into our lives and in our hearts, loving the rich and hating the poor. But remember, this isn't just about rich and poor, but that's a theme throughout James. It appears the congregation to whom he's writing did uh, have poverty. And the rich, there were likely rich in their midst who were believers, but there were also rich who were exploiting them and taking advantage of them, and that's why he's going to continue to talk about it. So James doesn't leave us in the dark about what favoritism might be. He shows us. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring or white gold ring or whatever kind of ring you have, platinum, titanium, you know, if it's just something that shows their status and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here. In a good place. Well, I have a spot for you right here. And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there. Sit here. On the floor by my footstool. Conclusion, haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, why would he be saying it like this? Distinctions among yourself, judges with evil thoughts. Our flesh is attracted to external appearances. How does somebody dress? How does somebody look? What car do they drive? And we know this. And we've joked about this before in our services where I'm like, you're not going to tell somebody you have a 2002 car with, with flat tires that are, or that are balding and it has rust in it and smells bad and you don't want people to be a part of it. Like, you're not going to go, hey, man, you want to ride with me? You'd be like, uh, I'll ride with you, right? I got shotgun because that's not what we're going to boast in. If we have a fancy car, if we feel like we're dressed well and people might even recognize our clothes or what we have or our rings or whatever else, I mean, what happens? 
We feel like it exalts our status in the world. In the world system, it often does, doesn't it? Look good, well-dressed. All of us have hair that's too long right now, so that doesn't count. You get, a, you get grace there. But our flesh is attracted to external appearances. And if we find ourselves seen with or near or by someone of means, then we feel like it increases who we are. That's why I asked that question. Who's the most famous person you've met and how many people know? Because for some reason, we think that somehow makes us better. It like, it like makes us cooler. It's like that. Uh, we have a picture. And I, I mean, here I am telling the story. Somewhere in our house, there's a picture of Shaquille O'Neal at LSU walking off the basketball course with like a towel over his face. That's it. But what picture have we not thrown away? Now, also, it's not framed, and I don't even know where it is. Uh, but like, we have it. Because that's what we do. We like, oh, we want to keep the picture of this. Or we want to tell the story about this. Or uh, if we have something that's been autographed, or we have a, like, that's what happens. Your Facebook cover photo is probably you with your kids, or you outside, or you with someone famous, or you with someone cool, or you with your idol, or you with your hero. Like, that's just how it works. We think it does something to us, and we want the likes from that, don't we? We want people to know that somebody liked us or, saw us, or took a picture with us, even though they don't know our name. Uh, that matters to us. But this isn't the case. We, we don't give attention to people just because of what they wear or how they look or what we think we might gain from them. And, but wealth does funny things to us. Having money, having things, having stuff. And it does funny things in church life. We realize that a good amount of time and a good amount of our hearts can focus toward money and even what a wealthy person can do. Well, if we make this decision, well, the one who gives a good portion of their income and that income percentage is big, like it, 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 we don't want to offend them, right? We don't want to offend Matt Akers because what if he leaves? Right? We need, we need his tithe. And, and don't think for a second that 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 isn't a temptation that can enter into church leaders' heads. We go, well, oh, they don't really give that much anyways, and so we don't care if we offend them. Because we live in this fallen world, in this sinful world that looks at appearances, and this is what can happen in church life. Well, we have to be really sure that this voting block is okay with that decision because they control a good portion of our budget. And if we make a decision that offends them, guess who's not getting a paycheck? Me. And so what starts to happen? Even in a sneaky way, we might think of it as being a servant leader. We might think of it as being kind. We might think of it as being loving and gracious and thoughtful. But what we're really doing is coddling people who have money so that we can look better or so that we can get what we want. But this also happens. When we start to look toward people who can provide something for us, and look away from people who we don't think can, we start to ignore, reject, or push down what they can do for us. Do for us. Isn't that such a terrible way to talk about people? What they provide for us? It's a terrible problem when we start to view people as dollars and cents. And he says why right here. Because you've made distinctions. Oh, but, yeah, sorry, my bad made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. Distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts. James is pitting favoritism 
with evil. And you could say the preferential treatment of a race, the preferential treatment of a career, the preferential treatment of all of those things where we start to go near somebody because we think that they have a better status right here. There's the condemnation. We've made distinctions among ourselves in ways that Jesus has not. And we have become judges with evil thoughts. James is going to explain why that is in two ways, kind of two sides of the same coin. He's going to first say this, favoritism opposes God's kingdom values. That means things that he cares about. Favoritism opposes it. So when we live in a way that shows favorites and plays favorites, that actually opposes what God cares about. We're going to see this in verses 5, 6, and 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you, the name of the Lord? Now, now, that idea doesn't mean this is how it always works. First of all, poverty does not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. So we're not looking at some way to try and have a certain status forever. But what James is talking about, in the same way Proverbs does this kind of thing, is they talk generally, in the same way that people of means and wealth aren't always just exploiting you. Right? So, so we know both of these aren't always the case, but it seems to be the case in James and with his audience that there's a significant disparity here in how they're acting. Now, one thing that is true is that you will find people of poverty to have found some level of contentment that often feels different than those of means. And again, I'm speaking generally. Satisfaction in the Lord, contentment, understanding of who he is, a recognition that he is their daily bread, that he provides what they need step by step and moment by moment. And that is not to say that we should not do significant work and give significant attention to removing people and helping them to get out of places of poverty, that we shouldn't care for our neighbors and see to it that we can support them and uh, earning money and finding the way to kind of get in a path towards financial freedom and financial security because that's a good thing. So again, talking generally, he says that. The poor are rich in faith. Don't the rich oppress you? You've dishonored them, but the rich oppress you, and they drag you into court, and what happens? Think about it. Even in today's world, when you have means, when you have a significant bank account, you can hire lawyers for days. You're not worried about your argument. You're not worried about that. You can pay other people to even take care of you, to give attention to something. You should go, oh, yeah, we have people for that. Don't they oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So what we see here is that there's a way God's people operate God's kingdom values, God values, cares about, and loves the poor. It's not that God loves poverty. Remember, Jesus was rich, became poor for us, so that through him we might become rich. It doesn't mean rich in money, but it means rich in our inheritance in him. 
So when I say kingdom value, I mean, there's a way that God has always operated in this world and on this earth where he has given care and consideration to those who have none. Remember even last week, do you think you can speak well and you're religious and you can't keep a tight rein on your tongue? You deceive yourself. True and undefiled religion is this, to look after the widow and orphan in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God has always been caring about, thinking about, and giving attention to those who are poor and without advocates and without care and without support. So favoritism opposes God's kingdom values, but it also opposes God's law, how he has declared the world would work, the world that he desires. In verses 8 through 11, this is kind of our second reason, but again, it's two sides of the same coin. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law, kingly law prescribed in the scripture love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well if however you show favoritism you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder so if you do not commit adultery but you murder you are a lawbreaker so starting in verse 8, James talks about this royal law found in Scripture. This supreme law, this greatest law that is found in Scripture. And it's interesting that he quotes, love your neighbor as yourself, because he's actually quoting Old Testament and his half-brother Jesus. Jesus repeats what is said in the Old Testament. This is why we're talking about it as supreme, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. First is Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, what do we have here? Divisions are wrong. Dividing yourself up is wrong. Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself, with the same care and support that you would want to give to yourself, with the same compassion that you yourself would want. Now, Jesus will say the same thing in Matthew 22, 37, 38, 39. In fact, uh, 37 through 40 was a memory verse from last year. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. So here, we have Jesus saying it. We have Leviticus saying it. We have Jesus saying it. We have the scriptures proclaiming a way that God would expect his people to operate. And if you do this, you do well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin goes against God's law. Favoritism goes against God's good law. And why does this make us guilty? And I'll try to explain it here as so we just think about this idea of God's good law. Because what does James do? But he says, if you, if you break the law in any spot, you break it all. For he who said, don't commit adultery, he also said, do not murder. Now, why does this matter? Because God is one. God is not divided. There aren't many gods. 
There isn't the Old Testament God and the New Testament God and the <clears throat> new heaven, new earth God. There's one God. And when you break God's law, because God is one, you break God's law, you break all of it. Because God's law is the expression of his character and his expectations and his heart for his people and how they should live. And so when he says you're guilty of breaking it all, listen, if you think you're good over here but not there, or you break this one but not that one, you've broken it all. This is actually incredibly consistent with what we have seen in Galatians at the beginning of the year. He's like, you want to go ahead and try and uh, break one law? If you break one law, you break them all. If you want to fulfill or find salvation through the law, you better go ahead and do all the law because the moment that you miss one, you miss them all. So Galatians and James, Paul and James, again, are in agreement, aren't they? You break one, you break them all. Playing favorites, though, is no small thing. It isn't just a misstep. It isn't just something you go, oh, my bad, because it's deeply rooted inside of human hearts. Favoritism undercuts everything that we know about God and everything that he's done for us. When we see someone dress nicely and we think they are better or more godly, we sin. When we see someone in our gathering who doesn't compare to how we live or doesn't drive the car that we drive or doesn't have the job that we have and we judge them, we sin. When we brag about the rich and the famous or the athlete encounters or the celebrity encounters or the celebrity pastor encounters that we have had, and we don't say, you know what? I was just talking to this guy at my church, and he's the best. She's the best. And we can't speak in a way that is loving and gracious and generous toward all, but we have a way we talk about some over others because we think that doing that will benefit us or improve something for us, what happens? We sin because we transgress God's values and God's law. And so what are we left with but these last two verses? To speak and act in God's way with mercy. He doesn't say with not favoritism. Right? He doesn't end. And you'll see this in James a couple of times where he's going to make a statement, he's going to illustrate it, he's going to make the statement again. He's going to do the same thing next week and the week after, even talking about, um, talking about faith and works. He's going to make a statement, illustrate it, make the statement, restate it, illustrate it, make it again. And so he's constantly kind of cycling through what does he want. So it's interesting that he's going to now contrast at the beginning, don't play favorites. Then he gives you the application of speak and act with mercy. The passage reads like this. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. The law of Christ. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Favoritism doesn't show mercy. It is not gracious. It's not compassionate. It's not loving. But mercy triumphs over judgment. We had the idea stated negatively. To one, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have it spoken positively in three twelve or two twelve and thirteen. Act mercifully. Speak mercifully. Now, isn't that exactly how James has already been talking to us in these first two weeks we've gone through it, this being week three? 
It's like, you better not look in the mirror and forget what you look like, but you do what you see in the Word. If you think that your religion is real, but you can't speak right, speak accurately. Did I say speak, speak right? I don't even know if I said that right. If you cannot speak eloquently or unlike Hans, then you are not actually living out the faith that God has for his people. Now, when we read this then, we get to hear both of those things, don't we? Speak and how you talk to and about and act in how you treat. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Why does this matter so much? Because we know that the law of freedom, the law of Christ, has been placed on our hearts. And we are part of a new order. We have a new way. This is the expectation of God for us. We're to act in a way that demonstrates that we will be judged differently because we belong to Jesus. We are to speak and act toward one another in the same way Jesus is going to speak and act toward us. Which is, what's he going to say to those who have faith in him? And we get there to the end and we see him and he says, well done. He doesn't say, oh man, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do that? Speak and act in these ways. If we do not live mercifully, then it could well demonstrate that we do not understand or we have not received mercy. The passage ends by showing us how beautiful mercy is. And so maybe even this morning, you're in your heart and you're all up in your frustrations and in your anger and in your judgment. And what would God ask of you? But to humbly respond to the gospel of grace that Jesus loves you. That Jesus died for you. That Jesus is not going to play favorites with you against somebody else or against you with somebody else. That Jesus is for you. That Jesus knows your worst, and he still died for you while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, and through faith, and we'll talk more about those elements of faith next week and how they work together. Through faith in Jesus, trust, complete trust in him, we are forgiven. You've heard me uh, quote commentator and uh, New Testament professor and author some, Doug Moo. I just like, I like his name and I like what he says. So both work. He says this, but our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment, the final judgment. Speak and act with mercy. So when I think about this passage, what it means for us, that favoritism is foolish, it's pretty simple. At Genesis, there's no room to play favorites. And when we do it in our community groups, or we do it in our language, or we do it in our worship service, or we, when we do it, we sin. And we go back to the Lord, ask his forgiveness, because ultimately there's no room friends who are following along James's expectation and then thus because this is the inspired word of God thus the Lord's expectation is that we all speak and act according to the heart of God that we reflect the values of the God who saved us because anything less is sin and anything less is unwelcome 
We should focus on the goodness and grace and mercy of our Savior so that we can speak and act in the way that he would have for us to act. We should probably stop name-dropping because it gets us nowhere. We should probably not live in fear of what somebody of means could do to us if we frustrate them or we hurt them or we harm them or whatever else. We don't need to respond in that way, nor should we try and buddy up to somebody of means simply because of what we think they might get for us, give to us, or be for us. Because Jesus has changed us. He changes the congregation. And that's what I love James is saying, and that's why I love this whole letter, why I love it. Because James is essentially saying, if Jesus is real for you, then I want to see it. And he's going to give us week by week, moment by moment, tangible application of how this works itself out. This week's it's no favorites. Only Jesus. And we're going to know, because he's even going to use this line, we all stumble in many ways. So when that happens... We go to the Lord and we ask forgiveness and we continue walking in fellowship with him because that's what we have.